Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 73. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionFanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. Also joining us, I promised him uh, in the outro to last week, we have Alan, or Loser Points on Twitter, from Raw Charge. Alan, how are you doing? Doing great, guys. Thanks for uh, having me back on. Yeah, of course. It was a lot of fun having you on uh, last time, and it was uh, a very well-received podcast. People tend to like when people who are not us are on this podcast, <laughs> which probably says a bit that. about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably says a bit about our podcast as a whole. But anyways, uh, moving on, we we brought Alan on to talk about the Atlantic Division. So I mean, let's just get right into it, and we'll we'll, we'll go in kind of reverse uh, or sorry, in standings order from last season. So we'll, we'll talk about Tampa first. Um, so my first question. For you, Alan, I guess regarding Tampa, um, why does Tampa keep stealing Toronto's things? So you you stole our jerseys, and now you're stealing our losing in the first round in embarrassing fashion thing. It's very weird. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, if there's one franchise you know you want to model yourself after, right? It's the uh, most embarrassing one. Uh, yes, exactly. Last, we, we, like, we are we are the model in this regard. Fifty years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, hey, anytime we can... It's 52. It was credit. <laughs> I don't know about most embarrassing. Yeah, no, I think that still take... exist. Yeah. yeah, but it's so condensed, you know what I mean? Like, I was I was really looking at the body of work. That's true. <laughs> Over the 50 years as a whole, little... I think we got to admit, that's probably... It's hard to compete with the 80s Leafs, honestly. Mm. Yeah, I think you got some recency bias on that, on that sense, on that sense, uh, uh, throw in there. They, you know, they, they didn't even exist when you guys were, you know showing everyone how it's not done <laughs> <laughs> all right so yeah, exactly we're if you go you're gonna take 20 minutes here while we come up with some more burns for alan and try to recover from how badly he's owned us but uh more seriously like does the columbus blue jackets thing have any bearing on how you see the lightning on how the lightning see themselves in the front office or is it just sort of like look we kind of got jumped it's crazy playoffs are wild yeah, it can't. Like you just you can't let four games ever, no matter the circumstances, uh, like affect decision making. Like I mean, it it affects obviously like people, right? Like there's like emotional responses to that, and it's frustrating and all that. But from like an organizational planning perspective and like an approach to how you prepare and what your strategy is and all those things, like it can't you, you can't let four hockey games affect you. I mean, like anything could happen in four hockey games. You could lose like you know 36 to nothing and like the building could catch on fire and you still have to say like ah it's a four game sample you know like we we don't we can't really draw any conclusions from that so um yeah i i don't think there's anything to be learned from that um if if anything you know maybe the coaching staff thinks about you know having maybe maybe they spend some time this season trying to figure out, you know, different ways that the team can be successful so that if they run into something like that in the playoffs, they, they have, instead of just saying, you know, we're going to play our game, you know, every, every night, then maybe they have multiple different types of games that they can play um, if they need to pull them out. And then the only, the only other like real thing that I think can be learned is like Nikita Kucherov can't get himself suspended in the middle of that. Like mm. that's, that's another way you guys mimic can... the Leafs, I suppose. Having <laughs> yeah, a I very know. crucial player with the same initials. Now that I look at it, that's eerie. <laughs> Why are you so obsessed with us? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, and I think like just like you guys have like I think both of us 
you know, like you just you just can't do that. Like it's just not yeah. acceptable, and it doesn't matter how frustrated you get or how the team is losing or whatever. It's just like you just can't do that. Um, and you have to have like the emotional composure to not allow that to happen. And so that may, maybe there's you know, in terms of like things to take away, maybe you know, Cooch has to take that like that can never happen again. And then the coaching staff maybe is maybe they throw some games away in, in February trying to you know try different stuff so that if they ever see themselves you know kind of getting running into a, a wall a little bit in a playoff series like that they have a, a direction to go instead of just trying the same stuff over and over again which you know the same stuff over and over again had got them like 128 points or whatever last year so it's not like that's bad stuff to keep trying right so like was there anything and not, not to like relitigate this playoff series because i'm sure you know you and other fans have discussed this ad nauseum but was there anything that columbus did specifically that like made sure that the tampa bay a game didn't work or was it kind of a combination of Columbus played well and it was like fairly even and, you know, the bounces went Columbus's way and, you know, you got the most extreme result possible? Yeah, I mean, so I think I'm going to like, I'm going to toot my own horn and then like someone else's horn like more loudly. So uh, like actually not last season, but the season before there was a chance that the Lightning could play Columbus in the first round. And I tweeted and it's still out there that I would want no part of the the Blue Jackets in the first round because they have... They play a very aggressive um, forechecking style and a very aggressive attacking style in the neutral zone that uh, gives the Lightning a lot of problems because it's it's very disruptive to their breakouts and and the Lightning have continuously had problems um, being able to break out and and especially from the blue line and relying pretty heavily on forwards to get back in the defensive zone and start the breakout and sometimes then you know you have your forwards having to go the whole length of the ice instead of getting the puck in the neutral zone in transition and and then carrying into the offensive zone so there's definitely some things that that columbus does that give the lightning problems and i think um aside from my tweet allison lucan actually wrote a great article uh, about that at the athletic and i it got shared pretty widely during that series but if people want to look that up that's a pretty great illustration of exactly what columbus was doing and and why it was giving tampa problems and and you know what i talked about at the time and i think what that amounts to is is Tampa was a much better team than Columbus. Columbus had a very good uh, strategy and approach to dealing with Tampa that took what should have been maybe a 60-40 series and turned it into a 52-48 series. And then, um, you know, Columbus won the the percentage battle. Um, Andre Vasilevsky had a, had a rough series and, and gave up a lot of goals. And, you know, you, you let yourself kind of get sucked into a 50-50 series or close to it and then next thing you know you know you get some bad luck and, and you're out in four games so I mean the the result was extreme even given Columbus sort of narrowing what should have been a larger gap but yeah it's, it's a lot of things Columbus has a great strategy that narrows the gap Tampa has bad luck that makes the gap wider in the other direction and then next thing you know you're, you're getting swept yeah that, that seems like a pretty fair analysis of it certainly I think the fact that it's a sweep gives it such an outsized role in people's imaginations, you know, and I'm sure obviously in, in the narratives that go on around it and the discussions of it, it makes it feel like it was guaranteed because I think people maybe think you can't really get swept in a 50-50 series almost, like that's kind of counterintuitive. They think, well, if it's four games, that means it was a total blowout and really Columbus was dominant here in a way that couldn't be matched and you know really what it is is that you could have a close series that ends in four games um crazy as that sounds yeah i think that's true and i think even maybe the opposite is 
is true too, which is that like because it was a sweep, it sort of made it so obviously an outlier that like you know if they had like blown a game seven or something, you know, there I think there would almost be more What's like that like <laughs> yeah exactly it was four one um if if uh so if it had been like a, a close series and they had lost, I think there might be like more kind of. Ah, uh, this team can't come through in the clutch. You know, they lost to Washington in Game Seven, and then they can't even get out of a game. But with it being like such a a weird, like just like obliteration sweep, it's almost easier to just. It's it's the difference between losing a Game Three Two and losing a Game Seven Nothing, right? Like if mm-hmm. you lose a Game Three Two in overtime, it's like ah, you know, it kind of sticks with you. If you lose a Game Seven Nothing, you just kind of go, well, that was that was that. Uh, so we're gonna throw that tape in the garbage and and you know just move forward. Mm-hmm. That seems like a rational attitude. Yeah, it very much so. Um, <laughs> we've had a lot of time to get used to blowout losses, so I, I could definitely empathize with that <laughs> reaction for like specific games. Um, the thing I've, I found really interesting about what you said is like kind of the the matchup that Columbus gave and lowered uh, the differential between the two teams. Uh, I guess when viewed in a vacuum, and that's something that's like talked about a lot in the NBA, for example, where certain teams match up well against other teams and match up terribly uh, against other teams, and. You know, for the last few years in the NBA, um, the pervading question has been, you know, how, how does our team match up against the Warriors in the playoffs? Because they're so centralizing a figure where it's like, if you, win a t- if you want to win a title, you basically are going to have to go through them at some point. We don't really see that in hockey as much, in part because I think play styles are less easily identifiable in hockey. And I guess also probably there, there's a lower variation in, in play styles in, in, in hockey. But I, I do find that... Really interesting. Are there any other teams? This is, I guess, a bit of an aside. Are there any other teams that you think would have been a particularly easy or or particularly hard uh, matchup for Tampa? Um, I, I don't know about like easy or hard. I think it, I think like if we want to focus on the teams on this podcast, like a team like Toronto that is willing to just like get into a track meet. Like I think Tampa loves that. Like yeah, let's do that. You know, yeah, let's, and, and let's Toronto go up does and down the ice and Toronto does too. Where it's like it's like kind of playing strength to strength it's like okay you're good at this we're good at this let's see who's better yeah yeah exactly and, and i think I, I don't know if there's a team like off the top of my head that i would think of but like a, a team that tampa feasts on is is a team that will like sit back and be conservative and give them space and you know not attack them at their own blue line and wait till they're they're at the other blue line to really put pressure and like tampa loves that all day like if you make it easy on them through the neutral zone like they're they're going to take they're going to get in the offensive zone they're going to carry it in they're going to take advantage and so um I, I think a lot of teams will probably look at that columbus series and and it's easy like columbus you know has a lot of good players who allow them to play that way and things but i'll be interested to see how many teams try to you know take a page out of that playbook and and sort of replicate the success um that Columbus had, and it's not a new thing. Um, I, you know, we've been talking about this in Tampa forever, almost for the entirety of John Cooper's tenure there. If Tampa has a weakness, it's that um, their breakouts aren't aren't great. Um, part of that is because they don't do a great job of identifying the right talent on the blue line. Um, they've had a lot of weaknesses there over the years. You know, a Jason Garrison, Andre Schuster, second pairing, the year they, they missed the playoffs, that kind of speaks to that, um, the amount of forward talent that they had on that team, and then they, they couldn't put together a blue line that was competent enough to to even you know sneak them in you know at the at the you know eighth or seventh seed or whatever so yeah i mean i think i I think it's a consistent problem 
for Tampa, I think they've done a better job the last couple of seasons of putting together a more competent group this year. Uh, they seem to be trying to solve it with just quantity. I think they've got like nine or ten <laughs> defenders who could potentially play in the NHL, so that's one way to try to deal with it. Um, although like seven of them should be on the bottom pair, so that's maybe a problem. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that's that's really the thing is like, you know, can you can you be aggressive on the forecheck? Can you put pressure on them in their own zone? Can you force the forwards to get back and and pick up the puck deep in their own D zone and start the breakouts themselves? And if you can do that, then then you neutralize a little bit of what they can do. You know, once they get into the offensive zone. Do you um, looking at the defense? Mikhail Sergachev is kind of the the name that we always think of in terms of Tampa has such an embarrassment of riches, and they've got another good player coming up. When you describe, you says. You said like a lot of them should be on the third pairing. Does that include him, or is he ready to kind of run a second pairing, or where is he at? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I was like super high on him after his rookie year last year. He he kind of had a rough year for me. Um, I, the decision making didn't seem to kind of progress the way that you would want it to. Um, he he didn't kind of take steps forward in in the way that I had hoped and and what the coaches would say is that they started to give him more responsibility last year and and that they wanted him they were pretty explicit with him in terms of wanting better defense and wanting him to be better in his own zone so it could be that you know he was super young and and learning how to play on the defensive side of the puck you know, in the NHL. And, and that's what I was sort of seeing with my eyes because the results were still really good. His, his first half of the season was rough numbers wise, but he really picked it up in the second half. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with him this year. They, they have talked in camp about putting him on the first pair with Victor Hedman this year. Um, wow. That is a pairing that I don't, uh, the idea of the puck leaving the offensive zone, uh, like scares me a little bit and I'm not like the most conservative <laughs> hockey person in the world. So, uh, that's, that seems a little dicey. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're, if you have an offensive zone face off and you put those two guys on the blue line with like three of Tampa's forwards, then, I mean, maybe the puck just ends up in the back of the net every time. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it sounds, t- sounds terrifying to go up against that's for sure. It would not be fun from, because I'm, I'm thinking about the Leafs defensive zone execution and that that's, um, there's basically no matchup where I'm like, oh, that feels good. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think the thing the thing with Sergeyev is Tampa is committed to that McDonough Chernak second pair because it was so good last year and as sort of their like defensive matchup pairing. So that sort of leaves like, is Sergeyev going to play on the first pair with Hedman or is he going to play on the third pair? Um, and so I don't I don't know that there's a lot of room in between for him. And so that's that's what we'll find out I guess in camp and then. When the season gets here, I think they would like him to be on the first pair and just have this like, you know, offensively dynamic, you know, kind of dominant first pair, and maybe you know a more mature Victor Hedman, you know, knowing, seeing, seeing when there's when there's danger and and knowing when to maybe hang back and and use his reach to his advantage and and be an even better defensive player than he already is. So going into this year, like I think a lot of us still think Tampa is the best team in the NHL, like. Even, you know, warts and all, I'm projecting them to finish first in, in my head. Is that how you feel about it? Do you think, like, they are probably the best team? I recognize there's a lot of variation in who actually finishes there, but something like that. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a few teams in the conversation. Um, I think Tampa is, I think there's probably, like, 
I don't know, where are there like three to five teams maybe you can make an argument for, and Tampa is, is one of them. And if you're, if, you know, if, if we said even odds for everyone and you got to pick one, then you probably pick Tampa. Um, they just, that, that forward group is ridiculous. Um, the blue line is good enough. Uh, if you think Kevin Shattenkirk is not the player that he's been in New York the past couple years and actually, you know, has something left, then the blue line actually almost becomes like an area of strength if you're talking about him on like the third pair. Um, like, so yeah, there's, there's, I, I think, I think they're showing up first in a lot of things for a reason. They've got top end talent. They've got depth. Um, so yeah, I think they, they have as good a claim as anyone. You're not worried about Braden Point? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to mention that. We're, we're, we haven't talked about Point at all, but we're kind of assuming he's going to sign at some point. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think he, I think he signs eventually. Um, I didn't think it would take this long. Uh, I'm starting to think that maybe it goes into the season. It seems sort of inevitable that he signs a bridge deal. That's what they've done with every player of his caliber. It seems like it makes sense for him. Um, it'll be a much higher number, obviously, than their previous bridge deals. So I guess that's just what it is right now is is how high are they willing to go and what is the team asking for? I mean, I think for a long time we've felt um, like as a site at Raw Charge because I'm, I'm not like cap stuff isn't necessarily my area of expertise, but we, we do have, you know, Geo at the site who really knows that stuff really well. And so I think he's been thinking like three by seven and a half, you know, in that range it makes sense in terms of what the team has done in the past and sort of where the market is, obviously the, the Marner contract kind of throws a wrench into that. Um, I could see it going up a little bit, like eight, You're welcome. you know, <laughs> even up towards, <laughs> yeah, even, even up towards eight and a half. But I, I think it gets done somewhere in that range. It's just a matter of like, when is the team willing to offer that? And, and I think like, you know, his agent spoke to the media last week and I, I haven't heard anything that's like super contentious. They're not talking about him going to, you know, start skating overseas or any of that kind of stuff. So, or offer sheets or any of that stuff. So I, I think, I think everyone's a little bit surprised that it's taken this long. Um, but I, I think, you know, maybe a little bit into the season and, and it gets done if that, I mean this, or if we could just replay the Kucherov thing where, you know, two days before the season, they just get in a room and get it done. Yeah. I mean, he, he did turn down an offer sheet from Montreal, was the, the rumors, or he indicated a disinterest, um, which is kind of suggestive. I mean, and there are a lot of reasons to want to play in Tampa, both personal and team-related. So, yeah, I mean, by and large, I still think Tampa kind of towers over uh, the Atlantic Division. I mean, maybe there's going to be a bit of regression. I mean, I'm sure you're anticipating some of that. Like, I don't know if Nikita Kudrov is going to get 128 points again. 130. Do you kind of have an idea? Hundreds. Oh my god. Uh, I don't know. Like, do you have an idea about where you expect him to finish? Recognizing that you know point projections are always a bit of a crapshoot, but like, do you think he wins the uh, the Art Ross again, or like, he's going to be in the running? I mean, this, the, he should be in the running. The smart bet is always no, right? You don't say that somebody's mm-hmm. going to finish first in anything, and then you're right every time, pretty much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't think he'll win it yeah. again. I think he'll be in the race. Um, it's, it's a health thing too, right? Like how many, how many games does he play? And, and um, like I think, 
I don't think he would ever say this, um, but I think last year the team was like pretty conscious of what he was doing and and like they were doing some stuff with the empty net and things to try to get him points and and that's that's fine like points are like one of the few stats that we have going back all the way through history and so like it, it means a lot if you have one of those seasons so I think maybe the team is going to have a very different approach as a whole to the regular season um to where they they kind of did everything that you can do in a regular season last year and so I don't I don't think this year is really gonna it's, it's not going to matter in that way to sort of like chasing records and things like that. So I, I think they're just going to, I think they may, you know, take a more conservative approach and may try to do some different things and manage, you know, players minutes and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think he approaches what he did last year. I think he has a normal, whatever a good scoring season is now, you know, in the nineties, you know, low hundreds, something like that. And, and just has a, Nice, solid Nikita Kucherov year where he continues being, you know, one of the best five players in the league. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think you can draw a parallel between that and the team as a whole, right? Because, I mean, it's very stating the obvious thing, but the team is probably not going to get 120-whatever points again this year because there's just a lot more room to go down than to go up from that sort of thing, right? Um, and it, it seems kind of more likely that they'll take a step back to being kind of a run-of-the-mill, very good team a run-of-the-mill kind of elite team in the NHL as opposed to this dominant force that, you know, was just obliterating everyone and everything in terms of uh, their results. The the interesting uh, thing to me, so last year when we had you on, we talked about kind of the anxiety that comes with being part of a fan base, being a fan of a team where the regular season doesn't really matter in any real way. You're, you're just trying to get to the playoffs healthy, make sure everyone's getting going at the right time, make sure your, your goaltending seems to be sorted, and then it's that two-month sprint at the end, and obviously it didn't go very well for either of our teams last year. Um, but I think last year, like with the the whole chase that Tampa did, lent meaning to their season at least from afar in a way that wasn't really predictable beforehand because there was legitimate history being made and records being broken. And and this year it feels like there's no way that'll happen again. So you're you're kind of back in that situation of okay, we, let's just hope everything's good in April, right? And is that is that kind of the feeling around the fan base? Yeah, I, I tried really hard to, like, enjoy it, and, like, I tried right. to write a lot about it, and, like, write about sort of the absurdity of what they were doing, like, both as a team, and then Kucherov's kind of point chase, and, you know, putting up, you know, mid-90s Mario Lemieux kind of numbers and stuff, and so, um, yeah, I tried to, it, it, it was sort of a, a weird thing where you, you know, like you said, like, normally you expect with a good team, you're just kind of waiting to see you know, what happens in the playoffs. And then we kind of got this gift of all this, you know, this sort of absurdly good regular season. And I really tried to capture it. And I hope I did some of that. But it, yeah, the, this year, this year, I think the fan base is even like, I, I think last year kind of broke a lot of people in some ways. Like, I, I think, I, yeah, I don't know if some people are even going to like watch regular season games this year. Like, it's, it's just going to be like, everyone is, there is nothing, there's, and when I say nothing, I mean, like, I'm using that word literally. Like, there is nothing that this team can do in the regular season that will matter to anyone um, in the fan base. So, it's it's just about it's just about playoffs at this point. And they've been to conference finals and they've been to Stanley Cup finals. So it's not even about that. It's 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 the cup at this point is is what they're they're aiming for. They're they're in that sort of 
type of team that we see in sports where they've sort of done everything else there is to do. And the only thing that they can do to improve their resume at this point is, is to win a championship. And that's sort of a brutal spot to be in hockey as a fan um, because it's so incredibly unlikely, even if you're the best team. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the reality of it. That feels like a pretty good bottom line on the, the franchise there. Is there anything else you wanted to share with uh, your beloved Toronto listeners about the Tampa Bay Lightning? Uh, Stamkos is looking pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad we got Tavares. Now I don't have to worry about Stamkos choosing to stay with his wife, so to speak. But, uh, yeah, so we can... Uh, Move to the next and extremely oh, beloved a- team. Sorry, actually, Atlantic. before before we oh. do, I just wanted to quickly, I, I guess, for a lot of our listeners who don't necessarily follow the Lightning that closely, what what are their major roster changes this year? The only one I think I know off the top of my head that is big is the, the JT Miller trade. Is, is there anything else that will dramatically reshape how the Lightning line up? I mean, I don't think there's anything dramatic. We talked about the Sergejev thing. That's mm-hmm. kind of the biggest. That's kind of the biggest question. Um, is sort of where does he slot in on the pairs, and then that all the other stuff is is you know kind of bottom of the roster things. Like there's a chance for a forward to to make the lineup on the fourth line, you know, like a Carter Verhage type player, or um, you know an Alex Volkov, you know, prospect type, or and then you know they signed Kevin Shattenkirk, and so you know what does his role end up being, and what type of player is he at this point? But yeah, the the roster is pretty is pretty locked in. Um, I think there was a point in the summer where we thought maybe, you know, a player like Cal Foot might, you know, have an outside chance at making the team, but I don't I don't think that's reasonable at this point given the amount of depth that you know, NHL depth that they've they've acquired and, and JT Miller um leaving, like if he was in camp, I don't even know I don't even know where he where he would go in the lineup. That's how ridiculous the forwards are. He was playing on the fourth line sometimes last year. Um and I think he's going to play on Vancouver's like first or second line. Um, so it, it, they didn't even have, not only did they not have cap space for him, they didn't have like ice time for him and he's a good player. Yeah. Okay. So I guess now we can move on to the Boston Bruins who thank the Lord. They didn't win the cup last year. Jesus Christ. That would have been awful. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So uh, Boston, they're, they're a frustrating team, at least from my perspective. Well, for the obvious reason that they keep beating us in the playoffs. Um, but also because they seem to have lucked into, and I, I'm going to use the word lucked into, although I know it's not entirely luck, but they, they have basically two MVP caliber forwards who cost combined what one of our top forwards combines, essentially. Uh, then they have David Pasternak, who is better than either of our two young wingers, in my opinion, and also costs like a third of what one, of, or two thirds of what one of them costs, and then like a million uh less than the other or half a million less than the other so they're they're just annoying in that perspective um Alan, and that mcavoy me? contract yes that mcavoy contract is, yeah, is quite good as well preposterous. so it's like it's really really annoying at this point can you give me any hope Alan, that like something's gonna go wrong for them this year uh zidane ochara tips over sideways on the bench and because he's so tall crushes like four different players <laughs> at the same time like a like a tree falling over and like on like multiple people um i yeah i don't know uh yeah they're they're frustrating um they are a little bit like tampa and that they seem to have this sort of like they're 
they have their own they have like a Boston Bruins contract market, you know, and like mm-hmm. the, the contracts internally on the team just sort of work independently of the way the rest of the NHL works. So sort of like Tampa does where they say, you know, you're you come off your ELC, you get this bridge deal. One year before your bridge deal expires, you get your long-term extension, and that's how it works. Um, and yeah, Boston seems to have this kind of pipeline of talent, and then they have their contract structure that they give players. And yeah, it's just it's really working for them, and it's it's really frustrating. And and although it was it was pretty enjoyable to see them uh, lose and and lose to the Blues too, which is like, you know, if you're gonna lose to someone, like lose to the Blues, like that, that's that's a little that's a little <laughs> rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean it is frustrating looking at, at their cap sheet because as you say they don't have anyone making 7.3 like after you know months where we talked about numbers that were like oh is it going to be 9 10 11 million and ended up being less than just less than 11 million per martyr and then you look at the bruins cap sheet and it's like they're not paying anybody anything you know they're paying pasternak and friggin belly button lint and um really our only hope well our only hope but like our biggest hope here seems to be it's like will patrice bergeron get old soon please you know he's 34 really we ought to be seeing some decline at this point and you know maybe there's been a bit but he's still really good and i'm kind of not sure where else to go zidane ochara is actually kind of washed at this point but he was not all that good last year either when you when we got a look at him and that didn't really stop them because they have the personnel to follow him up so yeah i i'm really just hoping that uh bergeron and marshawn kind of age out a little bit if they didn't have that david backus contract like it, it would be basically the best cap sheet in in the league it might still be even with that contract which is which tells you how much surplus value they're getting out of bergeron pasternak and marshan and I think the other frustrating thing with them and and your guys site manager Katya has talked about this a little bit is is that they they have like a good head coach in Cassidy yeah. like he seems like a pretty smart like forward thinking mm-hmm. guy and they made some um, from what I've heard like good hires in the front office on the analytics side and so they're making smart decisions and it's just yeah just a really really frustrating thing all around um, for a team from Boston to kind of be like doing things the way that they should be done and, and building a team really smartly and having a nice balance if it's between the top of their lineup and their depth. And as much as we all laugh at them uh, for the Barzal Connor Shillington tweet, um, they've done a pretty good job drafting too, in terms of, you know, keeping talent coming. Um, So yeah, it's, it's tough. And I don't, I don't see anything with them going into this year that suggests, you know, that they should, immediately be worse um i think the only thing we've seen with bergeron is maybe a little bit you know some of the injuries starting to catch up with him a little bit he has he's maybe missed a few games the past few seasons so maybe that starts to become an issue but they've i mean pasternak is so good and and marchand is so good uh when he is on the ice um when he's not suspended uh that it's just it's they yeah they just have they just have a ton of talent yeah i guess in addition to Bergeron declining, I mean, Bar- Marshawn's 31, right? So you would think, mm-hmm. okay, well, he's, you know, in theory, should be getting a little bit worse. Um, but he's had such a bizarre career where, like, until 27 or so, he was, like, a good, annoying player, like, similar to Nazem Kadri. And then he became an MVP-level player who was no less annoying. 
right? And it's hard, given that his career has not really adhered to any conventional aging curve, it's hard to know when he's going to fall off. I remember when he signed that eight-year, $6.125 million per year contract. People were like, that's really good value now, but it might look ugly if, if Marshawn declines. And he just hasn't declined. If anything, he's gotten better since he signed that deal. So it, it's, you know, it, it, until those two decline, they're, they're going to be very, very good. Now, saying that, the Leafs were up 3-2 on them and deserved to be there and had a one nothing lead in Game 6, right? Like they, they're clearly not unbeatable, right? They're, they're a good team, but they, they certainly lack the offensive firepower of the Leafs, and they, they don't generate shots anywhere near as um, effectively as the Leafs or as Tampa, but they are, of course, significantly better defensively, and that's another thing that's annoying playing them is that it's like they always have five and a half players. Like, everyone's always in a good position defensively. It's very rare you just get, like you can completely break their structure. And oftentimes when it does happen, it's because one of your guys just outraced Dan O'Chara, right? So it's, they're an annoying team. And I think, yeah, they're, they're going to be an elite team again this year, like another cup contender. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're hoping for something there, maybe the goaltending, you know, maybe mm-hmm. Yara Halak doesn't play like Vezina caliber, <laughs> you know, behind Tukarask. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean that's, it's yeah, it's 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 everything you said, and and the the yeah, they just seem to they seem to be smart in the front office. They play a smart style, and then they have Patrice Bergeron, who's like the perfect hockey player, and I think he's the player that a lot of us who watched a lot of hockey in this era will like look back on and someday like you know, say really, like, condescending things to young people about, like, ah, none of these guys are like Patrice Bergeron anymore. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're just they're just a frustrating team. In 2070, we'll be seeing how none of these idiots on the Mars Hockey League can compete against <laughs> the, the guys back on Earth. <laughs> we didn't have any anti-gravity uh, yeah. back when they played. <laughs> we'll be so mad that someone uh, is wearing 37. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah. So so yeah. I mean, but basically they're a deep team. You know, they don't have the offensive firepower as we've said of uh, the other two Atlantic top teams. But you know, they're there. I will say a lot of the there was a lot of uh, Toronto centric whining about like the playoff bracket last year. And to be clear, I think the playoff system is stupid. Like I think it should just be one to eight in each conference. That's simpler and it's a little more varied because it gets boring seeing the same teams every year but like you know i'm kind of resigned to if we ever are going to seriously contend for a cup we're going to have to go through some good teams including very probably the boston bruins like you got to slay the dragon at some point so i'm just kind of hoping they get a little bit worse sometime soon and they are not doing it to my discomfort so all we can do is yeah i guess and i I think like tampa Sorry, go ahead. No, I wasn't going to say anything smart. I was just going to say I feel like we've been too nice uh, to the Boston Bruins <laughs> and like somebody needs to insult them in like the next 30 seconds or I'm going to uh, feel I'll, bad. I'll try and work this. it in. I'll try and work it into my point. Um, so I think like Tampa, they're kind of running it back, right? The, it's mostly the, the same group. Some uh, fringe guys may have changed, but it, it's it's basically the same people who have done, who, who have brought their current level of contention that are going to, uh, try and get them over the hump in this, I guess, more recent era. I, they won the Cup in 2011, so it's not like it's been a long time. But, you know, the, they haven't... Last year was their best playoff run 
in this kind of last three or four years. So we'll see how how they do in in that front. I do want to say that like I find the team relentlessly annoying, and I know every team probably does this, but when I watch Boston, they just seem dirtier than everyone else. It, it just seems like they, they're always holding, and Zidane Chara interferes with someone like 25 feet away from the play, and then like does this bug-eyed look the one out of 12 times the refs call him on it. Oh, God, I, I legit like want to break glass when I see that. It annoys me to no end, especially because all the little interference that goes on in an NHL game is one of my biggest pet peeves. Like, if I could change the rulebook, I would say, like, actually call interference. And mm-hmm. the Bruins are the masters of, like, interfering in a way that matters, but is not so obvious that it's going to get called consistently. It's like what the Seattle Seahawks did in the NFL when they were, like, an elite team. They would basically pass interfere on most plays, but they figured the rest weren't going to call it on every play. And they were right. And the Bruins take advantage of that brilliantly. I agree with all of that, and uh, Sam Adams is a shitty brewery. <laughs> oh, man. Also, yeah, Boston's I, roads I mean... suck. That, that's the other thing. Boston <laughs> itself is a nice city, but their roads are god-awful. Just insulting them personally. Just like their restaurants are bad. Yeah, Fulman, do you have anything to... Do you have anything to add to this insult fest? About Boston? Um... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they produced Bill Simmons. Isn't that insult enough? Oh. But, uh... <laughs> Was that too harsh? No, no, it's yeah, fine. I have I mean, nothing like... else to... They've not only produced Bill Simmons, they've produced, like, an entire genre of, like, Bill Simmons wannabes. Where it's, like, you know, people oh, yeah, who view barstool. being Bostonian... At... Yeah, yeah, Barstool itself is just, like, being a Bostonian sports fan is now a personality that like will get you into the media and it, it's it was obnoxious even when they weren't a, a successful sports city but now that they've had basically the best 20 years any sports city could have mm-hmm. it's super obnoxious anyways um we should probably move on to the leafs um so before <laughs> fool and i i guess speaking of obnoxious media markets <laughs> oh, yeah. right down the plate too at 65 miles yeah there you go um, yeah, so actually, Alan, I want to get your thoughts on the Leafs before Fulman and I, I guess, discuss them with you. Like, wh- what do you think, um, where do you think their current like, kind of level is, especially with respect to Boston and and Tampa, and do you think that's changed from last season to this season? Um, I, I don't think it's changed a ton. I, I think um, one of the funny things about the Leafs is, we talked about this, like, last year when we did this podcast, is we talked about, like, the Tavares signing and how the Leafs are, like, this, this really... Um, great offensive team and they struggled defensively and then they went out and like got John Tavares who has this who has a you know a profile at least statistically as you know a huge you know offensive contributor but you know not great defensively and then this year they go and get like Tyson Berry who's like great offensively and like maybe terrible defensively and so I, I think it's I think it's fun that they just have fully kind of lean in either they just lean into this or they have something in their front office that they think gives them you know better insight that maybe these guys aren't as bad defensively as they look on other teams and I think there was maybe some evidence of that with Tavares last year so um I I think they're a fun team I think I think the 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 top three of this division is closer than maybe people think it is based on how Tampa ran away with it last year um I think the Leafs could just as easily as either of the other two teams um 
win this division. I think maybe Tampa is a little bit ahead, and then and then Boston and Toronto are are really close. Um, I think the Leafs having all of their players all season will make a big difference. I think they still have Freddie Anderson, who doesn't get the credit he deserves as one of the best goalies in the league. Um, they just kind of have they have everything, and they've still got some. I mean, you guys know this. I don't have to tell Leafs fan this. There's still some holes on the blue line, and there's still some questions in terms of how the bottom six is going to shake out, but they've just got so much top-end talent um, that they're going to they're gonna be competitive and they're going to score a ton of goals. And and I could, I mean, I could easily see them winning the division. I, I don't think there's a huge gap between them and even even Tampa, um, never mind Boston. Yeah, well, awesome. that's, uh, that's very nice of you to say. But also, I, I think that's, uh, that's fair. I mean, th- the truth is, is that if you want to dunk on the current iteration of this team, you have to be like, well, you're playing Cody Cece in your top four on purpose and you know that's uh that's tough you know it's as much as i like to think the defense may have improved or at least the defense group has improved with tyson berry and uh i I suppose i should chip this in because a couple weeks ago i was saying rasmus sandin was like unlikely to make the team because it makes a lot of sense to send him down his contract can slide I still think that's possible, but he's looked really good in preseason, and as we know, two preseason games unequivocally establishes him as the next Nick Lindstrom, so it now seems like at least possible he's going to make the team for at least the first couple games, but that probably, if we're being realistic, doesn't really change the profile of this team, as Alan has laid it out. I mean, it's just, you know, they are what they are once again except more so. You, you kind of don't have the leverage changing their spots that much. Maybe Austin Matthews has some defensive gear that he's going to find. I'm still kind of hoping for that because he's obviously a very capable and, you know, physically super competent player. Um, and he's just turned 22, so he's in a stage where growth is possible. But as a rule, you know, this is, you know, the run and gun leaps once again. And... We just have to hope it works better this time, basically. Yeah, um, and I mean, the Leafs are also going to be, as they often are, like just the kind of a central part in an analytics battleground where everyone is ready to laugh about Cody CC, justifiably, in my opinion. Um, and then Leafs fans are like trying to like kind of talk themselves into Cody CC, basically on their on their top pair or at least in their top four at the very very least. So. I mean, through through two preseason games, Cody CC has like a fifty five percent Corsi. He's looking good. I feel I feel positive about this. Um, I've made sure not to tweet <laughs> anything about this because then if I do, Manny's going to retweet it like a million times if it ever goes badly. So I, I'm I'm being very careful, but like yeah, it's we're going to have another kind of reckoning about analytics, and if Cody CC looks good, or at least not terrible, better than he did on Ottawa. Uh, if he looks like that on Toronto, then what does that say about, um, you know, our, our current abilities to isolate players from their context and their situations? And I, I actually wanted to ask you about that specifically because you have, and the Lightning have experience in this exact topic with Dan Girardi, right? Who's now retired, but when the Lightning signed him, it was like, what are they doing signing Dan Girardi? And I mean, you would you can comment on this and see if this is inaccurate, but from afar, it didn't seem like Girardi was that awful for you guys. So here's here a couple things on on this. Like one on Cody CC, um, 
like teams and sometimes teams with pretty smart front offices have been trying to acquire him forever. Uh, this goes back to Tampa trying to get him for Jonathan Druin. Um, not to appeal to authority, but I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm not fully convinced that everybody in those front offices is an idiot um, who like doesn't know how to check hockey biz and look at a heat map. Um, so that's the first thing. I, I When the Lightning acquired Jant Dan Girardi, um, I wrote probably the worst piece that I've ever written as a blogger where I basically said that he wasn't an NHL player and that this was a terrible decision by Tampa. Um, and that looks like like idiotic in retrospect. It looks as stupid as we on Twitter and on blogs constantly accuse uh, front office people of being. Um, it looks really, really dumb because Dan Girardi was perfectly fine and he played a kind of fourth or fifth defender role depending you know on on injuries and everything else in terms of his minutes um he played on the penalty kill he plays a style of hockey that is particularly prone to looking terrible if it goes badly because he spends a lot of it laying down on the ice um (laughs) but in aggregate like he was fine he was fine in that role um he was better than a lot of other options that they could have gone with. Um, by all accounts, he's one of the best people in the league in the locker room. Um, Tampa was great the last two years when he was there. Um, it's impossible to tell how much better he made other players in terms of you know, what he did in practice and what he did in a locker room in terms of you know keeping guys focused or keeping the mood light or, or doing all those things things that leaders do so um you know i learned a lot from that process and i think that i I think for one when we talk about stats that try to isolate player ability it's important to say that they try to isolate player ability um i think it's important to draw a distinction between them and stats that don't try uh and so anytime someone wants to make an argument based on stats that don't even try to isolate ability i think that you have to like I think sometimes there's an hypocrisy there where people will say like, oh, look, Dan Girardi looks a lot better in Tampa than New York, you know, maybe going from like one of the worst situations in the league to one of the best situations in the league. And But that same person will then turn around and use like points or, you know, time on ice or whatever as like, as like evidence of a player's ability. It's like, well, you're using an obviously inferior stat. So I, I think that the stats that we have um, whether it's isolated threat from from Micah McCurdy or whether it's um, you know adjusted plus minus or or war from evolving hockey, uh, these stats do a better job than any that have come before them um, than we've ever had publicly of of accounting for like context and like isolating player ability. But they're they're not perfect, and of course they're not because they never will be because it's impossible. Um, even if we had like perfect data it would still be impossible and we have very far from perfect data from the nhl so yeah i mean i think i think it's important to use the best stuff that's available but it's also important to uh, maybe not uh take such firm positions as i took when the lightning got girardi because then you look stupid in retrospect 
Yeah. Does that uh, answer the question? Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> uh, because the truth is, is that I do think that there is a bit of maybe a knowledge gap there in terms of how these things will translate. And as you say, it's not, it doesn't delegitimize the whole process of statistics, but, you know, some pretty smart and also intellectually honest people are working to improve them. But, you know, I, I've believed this for a, a while that, you know, maybe some of these guys who looked abysmal were not fully being captured and suddenly it became a lot more important for me to believe that because I've gone from laughing at Cody CC to being laughed at on the grounds of Cody CC. So there's a, an urgency to it now. Uh, it'll be interesting to, to see how he proceeds. It seems, you know, impossible that he's going to look worse than he did with the Sens because his numbers there were so awful and so was the situation. Uh, does he look good enough? I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, he does have a fairly low bar to clear in that he doesn't need to be a true kind of top-pairing defenseman, or no one's expecting him to be that. We're, we're hoping that, yeah, maybe he can be, you know, slightly better than Ron Hainsey was last year. And funnily mm -hmm. enough, if, I, if, if you look at, um, like, a, a Hockey Viz isolated threat map, Ron Hainsey last year looked basically uh, as bad as Cody Ceci did in Ottawa. Right, so th there, there's reason to believe that the Leafs really didn't lose out it, by swapping the two, um, at least in a, strictly in an on-ice perspective. And, you know, maybe they can tap into something with CC and cobble together a, a, a pairing that survives, right? And like Tampa, uh, I think the Leafs are very much in the situation where their defense doesn't need to be what drives them to success. It just needs to be good enough, right? At the end of the day, you know, I always talk about kind of the value proposition of, of a team, right? Like, what do they do that makes them a great team? Um, and in the Leafs case, it's we, in theory, if everything's working well, we have two first, uh, first line caliber lines that we can just roll at you consistently. And both those lines have not just a, a first line center, but an elite offensive center and a very, very strong, close to elite in the case of Mitch Marner, um, running mate to, to help them. And we have active defense who can basically do enough to not get, to just let the forwards do their job, basically, right? Um, and that's kind of the least value proposition. It's we have these top two lines, try and match up with us. See if you can stop both of them. And if you can't, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult. And then the ancillary stuff is, at least last year, well, we can count on, as much as any team can count on goaltending, at least have a, a fairly solid goaltender in Freddie Anderson. Backup is more questionable, and we can maybe discuss that. And then the Leafs special teams was really strong last year, at least in terms of the process. Um, by any expected goals measure, the Leafs power play was like comfortably the best power play in, in the league. And this is one of those things that, again, and I kind of want your feedback here, because Tampa's power play, if you just look at their shot plot, it's not that impressive. But it's also built on the shots of Nikita Kucherov and Steven Samkos. And, you know... Average player X taking a shot from the top of the circle or taking a one-timer from the top of the circle on the power play is not the same as those two guys taking it, right? So how do you kind of actually see that evolving? Because a lot has been made about the Leafs kind of changing their power play structure because their goals for numbers lacked or lagged behind their expected goals for numbers. And from like my kind of statsy perspective, I, I, I kind of think uh, maybe that's not smart. Maybe they should just trust the process again. But do you think there's like actual efficiencies to be found there? Yeah, this, that's a good question. So, I mean, 
you're exactly right about Tampa in that they have two of the best shooters in the league taking low-quality shots um, that, for them, aren't low-quality shots because they can pick the top corner um, from either side of the ice. And the XG models also aren't capturing how many of those passes that precede those shots are cross-ice passes, right? So how many are right. crossing that slot line, Um forcing the goalie to move so you've got the best shooter in the league you know two of the best shooters in the league um firing shots at a goalie who has to come up all the way across his crease so i think like if you wanted to pick one thing in the entire league that our current you know ex- expected goals models fail to capture effectively it might be tampa's power play um because the goalie also has to be worried about uh Braden point standing in the slot right so they have like these three elite finishers um, all in different places on the same power play unit and it causes all sorts of problems and to the current data set that we have it just looks like a shot it looks like a, a slap shot from the you know from from the face off dot which is not particularly close to that and a pretty bad angle um, so not a great shot if you don't have all the other in- information so I think I think special teams um, and power plays in particular are one of those areas where you really have to rely heavily on coaches to understand players' strengths, to understand who are your best offensive players, um, where do they want to shoot from, where can they finish from, um, who are your best passers, what are the, you know, where do they excel in terms of opening up lanes, and and where can they put the puck for your best shooters, and and. I think this is one area that's really kind of ripe for innovation and creative thinking and new approaches is um, that you, you, because you have that advantage of a player, you can exploit some of these things that we know um, that allow you to create better shots. And I, I think that, you know, the data that we have is maybe not particularly well suited to evaluating special teams specifically just because, um, player movement and goalie movement and puck movement is so integral to determining shot quality and on the power play is one of the rare opportunities in an NHL game where you can actually within structure intentionally manipulate shot quality. That seems very fair to me and I do think that this is also partly a legacy of you know that very first wave of kind of modern analytics in the NHL's better data era was like okay We've got five on five. We're going to try to figure out five on five. We're going to do everything we can to describe five on five. And I think that there may almost be a bit of a bias in the discourse to treating five on five as where real hockey happens. And special teams as being kind of uh, finicky and maybe not entirely almost serious. You know what I mean? Like it's treated as kind of weird and like a, a less of a steady basis for a team. Um, I don't know if we're quite wrapping on the Leafs yet, but if we do, this that would be a good place to transition to the Montreal Canadiens, who are dominant 5-on-5 five five and not so much special teams. Uh, Arvin, did you have anything else you wanted to say about Toronto? Well, I mean, I, I think, no, we can tie this into Montreal, because with the Leafs, like, if you look at their, their shot plot on something like Hockey Biz, it is just a gigantic mound of power play shots right in front of the net. Right? Just like an absolute ton. Hockey Biz estimates that they were... 42% better than the average power play, which is a ludicrous amount, right? But in terms of actual goals, it was, you know, much worse. Um, it was like ninth in the league or something like that. And in particular, the the way that 
it happened was the Leafs started off super hot in the power play and then fell off as the year progressed. And it was common to say that teams adjusted to the Leafs and they took away the options. And visually, it looked like that was the case, except the Leafs kept getting great shots, right? If you look at um, the Leafs' expected goals on the power play from October 1st, so basically start of the season to end of season, December 1st to end of season, February 1st to end of season, and like March 1st to end of season, they were first in every single one of those categories, right? So the goals weren't coming, but the, the chances consistently were. And unless there's something that makes us think that, specifically with respect to the Leafs, that, you know, they're something that the data is not capturing, whether that's a lack of puck movement or just there's a ton of players in the way that means all those shots are maybe obstructed or, um, you know, not particularly high quality. Unless there's something that makes us think that those shots are not actually as good quality as we think, it seems like their power play strategy last year generally worked, right? So this is kind of a battle I'm going through myself right now um, because the, the assistant coach, Jim Hiller, who ran the power play, was, in a delightful euphemism, told he could look for other opportunities which is just a very polite way of firing him. <laughs> um, yeah. And now we have Paul McFarland, who most recently ran Florida's power play, which was run in a very, very different way. Um, although it was, I think, a pretty decent one. It, it was built around Mike Hoffman's shot, from what I remember. And again, it's one of those power plays that does not look good when you look at the shot plot because it's a bunch of shots at the top of the circle. But from what I remember, they also... Uh, ran parts of it from behind the net, using playmakers behind the net. And I, I remember that because they did that against the Leafs and they scored on this power play. It was like a Barkov goal. Um, so that, that would have made someone like Ryan Stimson very happy. So I, I, I'm kind of not completely sure about how this new Leafs power play is going to be. And it it's important for them to have a strong power play because that's a huge portion of their value. I, I tend to still kind of side with the stats and say, if they change it up, I'm guessing it's going to make it worse as opposed to better, but I'm I'm not 100% confident or even close to 100% confident in that. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on that? And if not, we can just move on to Montreal. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is with, with power plays, um, like sample size is so tough. And so yeah. if you want to make the smart, you know, call from afar, then you just say like, if, if, they're getting great chances and those chances aren't going in the net, then just keep getting the chances like, and it'll probably be fine. Um, but if you're the team, you don't have that luxury, right? You're not looking from afar. It's not something that you think about a little bit. You have someone probably with more detailed data, like try to actually figure it out. Like are the chances as good as they look at an aggregate or are they not for the reasons you mentioned? Like are there players in the way? Are they, are, is the goalie stationary for every single one of these shots? And if that's the case, then and then you go out and you try to fix that. So, yeah, I mean, I think the smart play is always to say, like, hey, they're, they're good shots. Eventually, they're going to go in. Um, but like like I said, on the power play, I think, is the one chance where you, you, re- you really can um, kind of manipulate shot quality and, and, you know, within structure, intentionally move the goalie in a certain pattern to create an opening in a way that you can at five, uh, five on five. And so if I think that's what teams should be trying to do and, and it may not look great on a, on a shot plot. Um, but if you put the goalie in a bad spot and then give a good shooter, a good look, then that, that's a good way to get, get the puck in the back of the net. Yeah, absolutely. So regarding Montreal, as, as Fulman alluded to, um, Montreal is a very strong five on five team, uh, better than the Leafs actually at 5-on-5 and better than most teams at 5-on-5. But their power play is legitimately 
horrendous. And it's horrendous in a way that I am quite sure a shot thought actually does indicate quite how bad it is because they don't take any shots anywhere, uh, like relatively speaking, except the point. Basically, all their shots relative to an average power play, all their excess shots come from the point. And I think that even if you have very clever player movement and puck movement, point shots are never really going to be a great strategy for a power play. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a terrible idea. And I, and I think this generally gets back to some thoughts that I have about uh, Claude Julien in general. Um, you know, he was... His Boston teams at the end there always looked great from a volume perspective, not so great from a quality perspective, and even worse from a goals perspective. And we're seeing some similar stuff in Montreal, and I think there's, I think there's some things about that that are partially due to his system, and I think there's some things about that that are, that are due to the types of players that he feels comfortable coaching. Um, and so I, I think all that stuff kind of lends itself to these really these teams that dominate volume um, but don't control the results as well as they did, um, you know, maybe, you know, in, in or earlier in his time in Boston when it was, you know, when, when the Bruins and, and even the Kings had these, you know, sort of, they controlled the quantity, but maybe there wasn't a lot of quality. And I, and I think that, you know, we've started to see over the past few years that teams have understood um, a little bit how to get better shots and are maybe willing, especially like point shots on the power play, like give those up all day. You can take those for the whole two minutes um, and we'll get out of the way and the goal you'll save every single one of them. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I think maybe he's, he's coaching in a way that, isn't optimal for right now that said uh i'm sure they will uh like win the division this year and then like go to the conference final and that'll look stupid but i just i've been thinking about this about him for the past several years um all the way going back to the end of his time in boston that i just i i think he's got a system that really lends itself to quality and and or to quantity and not quality that would certainly seem plausible for a lot of his track record and but I do wonder to some extent is he coaching to the personnel that he has especially in Montreal I mean Boston I think we've seen the talent that they have and Montreal had a lot of guys who were real hot last year Max Domi uh, is obviously one Drouin showed more than I think we thought he had and I think they do have one legitimate pretty high-end offensive talent in Brendan Gallagher it's probably fair to say. But as a whole, I don't think that their forward group really compares to the kind of behemoths of the, the division. And so the idea of a team with that kind of profile dominating with a relatively conservative five-on-five -five strategy makes a certain amount of sense to me. I feel like maybe Julian would be doing worse in terms of holding his team short of its potential with a lineup like Toronto or Tampa has. With Montreal, I'm a little bit like, well, I'm not sure at five on five, I want to emphasize that he has the horses almost for some of the high level performance. I mean, the power play, I think it's fair to say like, that's just bad. It's not going well. So. I mean, I, I, I hear that, but I also think that like, he bears some responsibility for that. Like, why isn't Max Pacioretty on that team anymore? Mm -hmm. Like, why, when he was in Boston, did did players like Tyler Sagan and Phil Kessel and Dougie Hamilton, like, constantly end up not on the team? Like, 
I, I think there's when, when Montreal hired him midseason, they immediately turned over their like entire bottom six and got rid of a lot of like speed and skill or skill oriented players for a bunch of like plugs and grinders. Like I think I think it's I think that Brendan Gallagher is the best offensive player on that team because like that's the embodiment of exactly the type of player that Claude Julien wants and the, and the type of player that he wants to coach. And, mm-hmm. and like Max Domi, same thing. Like, like he's, he's sort of been on, like, and then you look at like Boston where like the types of players that he was successful with, right? Like Patrice Bergeron and, and Brad Marchand. And, and I, I just think that these, like, he has a very particular conception of the way that hockey is supposed to be played. And I think that, it's becoming like it was a dominant style, you know, five, 10 years ago. And I think maybe we're getting to the point where it's not, it's not that anymore. Like the reason they don't have offensive firepower is because he didn't, he like, they, they ran those players off the team. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I mean, they, they've also, they kind of have cap space burning a hole in their wallet, right? So cap friendly has them with 4 million in cap space, but that's with uh, a roster of, if I can do quick addition, 25. So they could pretty easily free up a couple mil of that, right? So they have, they have $6 million sitting there. And this is something that Katya likes to say is cap space is just wins you're not paying for, right? That, that's all. That's all they, they, you purchase wins by spending money on players and they are spending $6 million less than effectively um, a lot of other teams. So they have $6 million less worth of wins on their roster, ideally, uh, or you would think. And yeah, I mean, they've tried to address it. They tried to, well, they did offer sheet Sebastian Ajo and he signed it. And that was an offer sheet that was laughed at, I think, by Carolina because it was still ridiculously team-friendly at the end of the day. Um, and they do have some good prospects. They have Nick Suzuki. They have uh, Ryan Paling. Yasperi Kotkaniemi looks like, you know, he'll be a very good player, although he seems more of a two-way guy than... Um, an offensive dynamo, but I am kind of worried about the Habs. I think if any team has the the uh, the chance to break into the top three of the Atlantic, it it's the Habs. Just because I do think you know you Alan, you've, you've given very reasoned criticisms of kind of the the style they play at five on five, but it is effective, right? They they do end up controlling a lot of the shots and the expected goals, even if it's done primarily through uh, quantity over quality, and even if it's done with forwards who don't who aren't known for having elite shooting talent and the ability to sustainably score above their expected goals. It's still a team that's very annoying to play against. Um, and and from my perspective, as someone who hates the Habs, I'm just kind of hoping that their special teams let them down again and that Carey Price, you know, who is 32 now, had, I, I think, basically a, a league average year last year, although it was separated into, like, a, a truly horrific start and then a, ver- a very good finish. If Carey Price kind of goes down they're kind of screwed no matter what. Uh, and if his performance goes down, they're kind of screwed. And I think if you're looking for reasons to dock the Habs, it's their power play is still probably going to be trash. And, you know, their goaltending is still in a precarious situation. And unless Price reverts back to Vezina form, that contract is horrific. It still has like seven years left at 10 and a half mil. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I think they're like a bad team. I think they're a good team and they like they do dominate the the shot battle and stuff but i i just think like for me what i'm trying to get at is is julian's teams are now at the point where me with me where it's like you know how many seasons of like 
it's it's where Carolina was a little bit, you know, where it's like how many seasons do I have to see them underperform their shot based metrics to wonder if there's maybe something legitimate going on. So that that's where I am with them, and maybe I'll be proven wrong this year. But and then yeah, like the the the, the Carey Price thing, like he played a ton of games last year, which I feel like I didn't realize as it was happening. Uh, but that's that's terrifying. I would be very worried about him this year if I was a Habs fan. Also, if I was a Habs fan, I would uh, make some significant changes in my life. I feel like <laughs> I would have made some really bad decisions up to that point. Yeah, just sort of as an aside. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting because they seem to be like a team on two timelines almost because they have these Weber and Price deals, which are, you know... 18.5 of incentives to win right this instant because they're going to age and get much worse. And then you have some good younger players on the way. You have a core of mostly youngish players. I mean, I'm thinking of Domi and Joyner, 24, and then you have Kakanyemi. Um, so they are in a bit of a spot where I, I kind of don't know if they know which way they're going to go. They, they seem to have a clear idea that they were going to add someone big via an offer sheet which I actually think was a smart move for them in principle. They just, you know, didn't swing big enough on it. But it will be interesting to see which way they go. I think they really look exactly like the fourth best team in the division. So if they made the wild card, I wouldn't be in the least surprised. Yeah. I wonder if they do try and throw an offer sheet at one of the few remaining kind of big name RFA. So point seems out of the question already, given the rumors that they tried and were rebuffed. But um, Line or Connor? Patrick Line, baby. Yeah. He wants I, I, to I don't leave. Think, yeah, I don't think Matthew <laughs> Kachuk would sign one either. Just uh, no. there's been no real talk about Matthew Kachuk at all, who I think is probably the best of the remaining RFAs, um, besides Point. Um, yeah. But yeah, like Patrick Line, that would be that would be interesting. That'd be spicy, especially if he came to to Montreal. I can't. Yeah. I, I wouldn't that, hate seeing that happen. It would be. It would be. It would be kind of crappy from a Leafs fan perspective because I think that's a good move for Montreal, but from like just an NHL fan perspective, like that's a cool story. Yeah, I, to make a really competitive offer sheet to the Winnipeg Jets that like they wouldn't match, I would say they probably have to trade somebody. Like yeah, six million, almost certainly. It, so yeah, 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 agreed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be fun. Also, it would be like we've been underperforming our our shooting, especially on the power play. It's like well. Look who he added. So in some sense, he is like the exact opposite of everything that they've had. So that would be interesting. But uh, yeah, they'll be worth also, keeping an eye on. Yeah. Yeah. Also seems like exactly the type of player Claude Julien would uh, <laughs> put in the press box. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine that? I like, can't they... wait for the Patrick Line healthy scratch. That'll be fun. <laughs> they, they signed Line to forget the mechanics of how this happens, but they signed to a big offer sheet. They have to give up a bunch of firsts. Second game after a line, he's like minus one in his first. He just gets press boxed. <laughs> oh God, you'd love to see it. Oh man, it's actually yeah, he, he's like the antidote. He's like the antidote to everything that they are in like every way. He he had like you said, Fulman. He has the shooting, which is exactly what they lack. Um, but is like the just direct polar opposite type of personality that seems to work with that coach. <laughs> oh man oh well it's probably too beautiful for this world but it's a fun thought um yeah so should we, i guess we should move on to the florida panthers who are 
trying nobly to be interesting. You know. Speaking of teams that are very dependent on questionable goalies with questionable contracts. Oh yeah, they got that fat Sergei Bobrovsky contract. Yeah, but you know that said, they have a lot of ability. I thought they would be better last season than they were, to be honest with you. Um, and I probably was underrating them a bit. You know, the more I look at this roster, the more I can kind of talk myself into it. So as you, their cross-state rival, Ellen, what do you think of the Panthers this year? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I like them maybe a little more than I should. Uh, I like their forward group a lot. I think um, if Bobrovsky has like a vintage Bobrovsky year, then like it doesn't take much for them to then be a decent team. Um, their blue line is not great. Uh, that Anton Strahlman signing, I like Anton Strahlman a lot. He's one of my favorite recent lightning players he was bad last year um and it did i it was probably the worst thing that i had to write about last year as a fan was just uh having to like acknowledge like yeah this is bad like this this isn't like he shouldn't probably be playing every night um so yeah i'm not i don't i'm not real optimistic about that for them the thing that i think that's really interesting with the Panthers, and I have been uh, saying this everywhere that anyone will let me talk, because um, I don't think it's been talked about enough, is that Aaron Ekblad was really good last year. Uh, like, really good. Like, a legit number one defender again, after everyone had sort of written him off, and after all the concussions, and um, people wondering, like, would he ever look like he did in his rookie year? Uh, he did last year, and I don't think he got a lot of credit for it. So, if he's that Aaron Ekblad again, then that I think that makes a big difference for them because they've got this, you know, I think a pretty impressive group of forwards. Um, and then if you if he's like a legit number one kind of anchor for them on the top pair, uh, then that that resolves some issues. So I'm I'm maybe a little more bullish on them. I think they have like a reasonable chance at the playoffs this year. Um, I like some of what they've done, but yeah, there's there's still a lot of questions and then if, if I mean if the Bobrovsky contract goes bad in the first year then they're just they're just done and that's it's that's a bad bet it's just a matter of when that bet um you know catches up to them and hopefully for their sake it's you know maybe they get at least like two or three good years out of that before they have to start worrying about what they're going to do with that contract yeah it's uh, I mean you look at their roster their top six is really really nice right? Uh, Huberto, Barkov, Dodonov, that's an elite line. Mike Hoffman and Vincent Trocek are, are very good. And then it just really falls off afterwards, like their bottom six. And I feel like this has been a problem for them for a long time. Their bottom six is just kind of very meh, right? It doesn't seem like there's anyone there who is a significant difference maker, um, which is, to be fair, how most bottom sixes are. It's just they don't have a ton of value there. Um, and then, yeah, there, it, a lot will really, really ride on, on Bobrovsky. And I guess it's reductive to say a lot will ride on a goaltender. That's true of every team. But in particular for Florida, it's really, really questionable. And I, I do kind of want to see them succeed just because I, I do believe that for the health of NHL hockey, having competitive teams in non-traditional markets, that's how you build fan bases. And Alan, I'm sure you've seen this with, with Tampa, right? Uh, having a, a strong team in South Florida will 
hopefully create a new generation of fans who like hockey and who are into hockey and that's ultimately how the game grows yeah i mean for sure i i definitely agree with that they're one of those teams that's in a really bad spot because they have a really terrible stadium location they have one of those 1990s suburban you know build it uh way out away from the city and other things will be built around it yeah they they took the field of dreams approach (laughs) where if you build it they will come that's that's great for a movie not great for urban planning yeah, so they're they're in a tough spot there. Like Tampa, for all their problems, always had a great stadium location that was, you know, within like the general kind of downtown area, and people could get to it pretty easily and, and all that stuff. So they 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 had built-in advantages in that way. But yeah, it would it would be great, and it would be good from a Tampa fan perspective to have that as like a rivalry. It it still has never been a playoff series. It would be a lot of fun to play them in a first round series or, or a second round series or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean that it's it's a relatively short drive between the two arenas, and you know you can envision a situation where both of the both teams are good, and people are driving back and forth, and um, you know making road trips and having road fans in the arena and stuff. So it would be great, but it just hasn't it hasn't quite materialized. They've been close a couple times, and they've had some stretches, but they just haven't been able to really sustain it. And so um, I think they've got enough to be a bubble team, um, and then. It's just going to come down to, you know, really percentage stuff that's going to drive them in either direction. You know, do they do they get good goaltending and they, you know, end up competing for a playoff spot or does does it go the wrong way and they, they end up, you know, sort of back where they were last year, you know, not well out of the picture, but, you know, sort of comfortably not, not really a threat. Yeah, th- that sounds like about their level. I-, I think that there's like, to me at least, they're it's not actually that hard to spice up this division in some ways. Like, you have the big three. You have two clear, solid bubble teams. Um, you have the Buffalo Sabres, who are the only one that I think might be in transition. And then you have two teams that are, like, completely at the base of a rebuild. So, yeah, Florida looks right around fourth or fifth in the Atlantic to me. I just want to note, because it kind of annoys me how little flack he's gotten. And he's gotten a lot from uh, some of the analytics community, I guess. But, like, Dale Talon has done a bad job running this team. Like, I would say a very poor job. Um, Look at the contracts on their defense. Yeah. Like, Michael Matheson. What's the point of that one, bud? Keith Yandel. Okay. You know, just some really dubious deals there. And they've got a core of good players. And, you know, I I have to turn around and also say Dodonov. Um, was a great addition. But, um, yeah, you, you know, it's hard not to get a bit of a feeling of what could have been with this team because I think if they were better run, they would be uh, a genuinely very good player. It, it's so easy to Monday morning quarterback, you know, the Smith and Marcheseau thing from the expansion draft, but even then that looked dumb at the time. So, yeah. yeah. They're, Keith, they're... Keith Yandel has one of my favorite parts of NHL contracts, which are superfluous no move clauses where it's like the like the no move clause is the contract right you you, you can't trade Keith Yandel because he's 33 years old and making 6.3 mil for the next four years but they gave him a no move anyways because why not <laughs> just to be safe yeah the, the thing with with talent is that so much of the media was so in the bag for that change when it happened mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible to conceive of like the sort of uh, like popular discourse turning on him from 
the people who were like so emphatic that it, that a change was needed after the um, after the, the stuff with the coach. I'm blanking on his name right now. Who's in Vegas Go now? On. Yeah, yeah. After the Gallant stuff, like like the the media was like so like over the top uh, that you know Dale Talon was going to come in and fix it and make them you know run the way a team should run and all that stuff. That we'll just they people would you know uh, I mean that 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 was that was like some Edmonton Oilers type water carrying that was going on like nationally for them. So and and Florida plays in. A small market and so it's very easy for everyone to just ignore it and just pretend that they never had those horrible takes in the first place and just let whatever happens down there yeah i don't really have much else that to say about florida about, right yeah so, so now yeah, I should we go to, to the buffalo sabers I, I was about to say i have to look up the standings because you know and this is not something i can say very often as a leafs fan but like i'm not used to looking this far down the standings these last few years so i actually just don't remember the order in which these these teams came but yeah apparently <laughs> buffalo was better than detroit um so Let's talk about Buffalo and GM Jack Eichel. <laughs> how how, how did Jack Eichel do this offseason in improving Buffalo? I mean, they got Colin Miller, right? Like, that's, yeah. yes, they that's did. a pretty interesting move. Um, they, they resigned Jeff Skinner. I mean, all, all jokes aside, I think they, they kind of did have a pretty decent summer, right? They uh, Signing Skinner, they signed him for... For too much money, nine million is probably more than you'd like to pay Jeff Skinner. But it's like, and we mentioned this when Fullman and I did our kind of off-season recap uh, podcast. What are you gonna do? Tell Jack Eichel that, hey, we're, we we've been a trash team. We've been a trash team since you got in the league, and we found one guy who wants to stay in Buffalo and who is really good and you have chemistry with, but he wants like a million dollars too much. So fuck that. It's just it, it's the cost of doing business. It's the cost of being in Buffalo, essentially. Right, um, they have they have and to the cost of being a bad team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the cost of being a bad team, like you, you don't you don't get you don't get bargains yet. Um, you pay market value or a little above until you prove that you're a competent organization, and that's how it works. So, yeah, like that's they they needed to resign him. It was the right thing to resign him. Um, yeah, the I, I like the Miller edition. I don't know that there's a lot happening there to. Like I still have them behind all the other teams that we talked about at this point, yeah, including I Florida. Do as well. um, so I, I, I just, I think they need, I think they need more help. I think that Ryan O'Reilly trade um, is a nightmare. Uh, I wish I had. I thought it was bad at the time, but I, I didn't go hard enough on it. I gave them like a little bit more credit than they deserved for that. I wish I had a really strong take out there when that trade happened about how terrible it was um, because it was awful. Uh, and I think that really set them back. I think if you put him on this team, um, they're a competitive team, uh, and I think without him, they're not. So it, I think that's kind of set them back a little bit, and then, um, you know, they've they've done a, a decent job, but they've, they're still stuck in this, like, Rasmus Ristolainen purgatory uh, situation. <laughs> um, and then they've, they've got Darlene, who looks like a legit like superstar um i'm really excited to see what he does in his second year so um they've got everyone's favorite prospect to argue about in casey middlestat and like is he good nobody knows can he do a pull-up yet um nobody knows uh (laughs) 
so yeah, they're 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 one of those teams that I think is they're they're in the in the realm where like they have enough interesting players that they're like fun to watch and and see what happens. But I'm I'm not I'm not ready to even like call them a bubble team yet. I think they're they're still on the outside looking in. Yeah, it's, I mean, I you just look at their roster. In the 80s. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And for what it's worth, uh, Dom Dom Lachishin in his uh, preview at the Athletic, he has them as like 28th in the league. So projected to be sixth in the Atlantic, which is where we're discussing them. Um, and the fact that, first off, the fact that he's sixth, that he's saying they're sixth in the Atlantic, but 28th in the league, means that Ottawa and Detroit are like 29, 30, or 31. So three of like the four worst teams or five worst teams in the league are in the Atlantic per Dom's model, um, which is something. It's This is, um, the Atlantic is a very, you know, top-heavy division. But yeah, like, you just look at Buffalo's roster. There's not that many good players. Right, and it's very reductive to be like, oh yeah, that that roster just kind of sucks, but it does. It's just pretty <laughs> met. They have a good first line. They have Sam Reinhardt, who I think is very good, um, underrated play driver, and they have Rasmus Dahlin, who I think will probably. If you gave me even odds on Rasmus Dahlin winning a Norris at some point in his career, I would bet on he will win a Norris. Uh, but yeah, it's just everywhere else. This is kind of a wasteland, and they don't have. A really reliable goaltender either so that's like another form of variance that they're exposed to that could make everything go badly of course if carter hutton or linus allmark has a great year then maybe they can propel themselves into bubble range but yeah it's just it's kind of men i say that even as like a big fan of for example marcus johansson who who, who they've acquired yeah i mean they went on an incredible percentage bender last year and it wasn't enough you know they, they had that they, absurd winning streak they won in 10 in a row and it still wasn't enough that's insane yeah. <laughs> They won 10 in a row and still missed the playoffs, and it wasn't that close. Yeah, so that kind of tells you, like, they would need, like, a, whatever that year the Flames went on that absurd run. Um, they, they would need that that kind of thing to get them into the playoffs. Yeah, I, like, I know that they were mailing it in towards the end, and it's kind of tough to compare a team that has largely given up and has started selling out and all that sort of stuff. But I remember us saying... Uh, around maybe December, we were like, okay, they're not very good, but they've banked so many points on this percentage run. All they have to do is not implode, and they should still be pretty good to sneak into a playoff spot. And they imploded worse than I really could have imagined. Like, they were so bad in the second half of the year that I'm a bit kind of boggled by it. And so I have a hard time getting a read on this team. Because I really thought that they were beginning the journey up out of the cellar, you know, in a genuine way. And, you know, yeah, they're better than Ottawa, but they had one fewer regulation win than Detroit last year. Like, maybe you should be contracted if that happens. I don't know. Um, just kind of glaring to me that, like, it's still as ugly as this. And the thing I is, mean, they've I guess hit, that comes around too. They've hit on most of their top picks too right like Darlene I mean these are no-brainer picks so you don't really get credit for them but like Darlene is looks incredible Eichel um I think early in his career Eichel had potentially like some stats people thought he might have been just kind of an empty calorie scorer but he had a legitimately like pretty decent year at least by isolated threat last year his scoring is obviously great he has really strong finishing talent he's an unbelievable skater but he also pushed play the right way um in, in a really impressive way actually and then uh, yeah most of but it, Ristolainen and Alex Nylander both went yeah, with top th 10 Yeah, those picks. are the two big flops. And, I mean, I guess Reinhardt, Reinhardt's not a bad player, but 
he was picked ahead of Ehlers and Nylander and Larkin and Pasternak. Pasternak was really far back. It wasn't expected to go there, but still. Um, not, not, Reinhardt wasn't an optimal pick either, but he's still a rather good player. So it, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I still think the biggest difference, and I, I wrote about this, like, I think in Matthews' rookie year, uh, how the Leafs kind of overtook the Sabres. It might, it might have been last year or the year before. Um, and basically, it still comes down to the fact that the Sabres burned down their roster entirely, and they just have never gotten around to acquiring good players. And the, the bets that they did make about acquiring good players largely haven't paid off, right? Like, Octopozo is it was not an amazing uh, decision for them to make, right? And, and part of that is health issues, which they couldn't have foreseen, although don't overpay John Tavares' wingers is another good model to live by. Insert Mitch Marner joke here. Um, but yeah, they just haven't really ever built up a stable of good players ever since they burned it down in the McEichel year. Yeah, I think it's like, it's pretty wild to look back on like what that season did to them as a, as a franchise. Um, I, I think that it's been enough time that it should have been possible to put together a competent roster. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I already said it, but just not trading Ryan O'Reilly for nothing for no reason um, <laughs> would have like gone a huge ways towards accomplishing that. But when you put it like that, it's like um, they made a really bad deal. <laughs> yeah. Alan, you're making yeah. it sound uh, like that was stupid. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think like, I think that they, like they, they really, they, like, there's consequences for doing to a team what they did to it, um, but they also haven't done what should have been done since then to fix it. Um, so, yeah, they, they're just, they need they need to draft better. Um, they need to make better decisions in free agency. I think they did decent this year. Um, and, yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take this long to at least be, like, not the 28th best team in the nhl in an nhl where the ottawa senators exist yeah very much so <laughs> is this a good spot to uh transition to detroit it, it's perfect because um that silence adequately encapsulates all the thoughts i have about this team <laughs> it's a rebuild they have some bad contracts that they still have to wait out and yeah, like, I mean, they've got Iserman, who is, is good. I'm going to be really interested to see what happens with Moritz Sider, who they were perceived to have really reached on with their first round pick this year. And, you know, like, the cardinal rule of rebuilds is don't blow your firsts. Um, you can survive a lot as long as you don't do that. But, uh, yeah, like, they're they're bad. Dylan Larkin is good, but the rest of the team is mostly kind of ass. Dylan Larkin's and very they're good. they're going to be bad for a while. Yeah, he is. He's like the the shining light in the darkness. And like he's kind of in a nice spot to, you know, as they're coming out of this in maybe two or three years, hopefully they'll get a season of him late prime, still at 6.1, and he can be a real second line center contributor thing if they really hit. But that's the best case scenario, I think. Yeah, I just, um, like last year we joked about how like looking at their cap friendly page is like, one of the saddest things that like you can do on the internet. I don't think it's that bad anymore. Like you look at it and you go like, Oh, like some of these deals are almost over. 
and <laughs> they brought in Iserman, and like maybe he can like move one of those, but you know, or two of them or whatever. Like maybe he can find a taker for some of these, um, and like expedite this a little bit because that was the thing when Holland was still there. Is it was like oh they have all these terrible contracts and not anyone in the front office who has any history of being able to move these. Like at least Iserman has a history um, in Tampa of being able to move bad deals um, without you know, hurting himself too badly. So I, I, there's a little bit more room for optimism, but they just, they have, they have so far to go. And for a team that is as bad as they are, um, they don't necessarily have like the prospect pipeline that you would maybe hope for. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's rough. And then their, their first draft under Iserman, um, was, by in terms of like the information that we have publicly and understanding that the draft is a crapshoot, um, it was iffy. And and you look at Iserman's history in Tampa and you say, well, they should be a great drafting team. But then you look at Tampa and you don't understand that Al Murray was really the one who who led the drafts there and and he had a a track record of a lot of success with the Kings before he came to Tampa. And so it's it's hard to isolate, you know, like how much of Iserman's success drafting in Tampa, do you think he could replicate in a new place um, with a new staff and stuff? So, yeah, there's there's still a ton of question marks for them. Um, none of them will get answered this season. They will be bad. They should be in the, you know, their goal should be to get, uh, you know, the best odds in the lottery. And, you know, they, they this is a stacked draft. And so it's going to be really, really important. Last year was kind of a weird draft where there was, you know, kind of a really kind of flat level of, of talent, you know, in the, in the top half of the draft. And so it was not, it wasn't surprising to see reaches. Like we knew there would be reaches and, and Detroit was one of the teams that reached next year is going to be so stacked with really high end players that it's going to be really important for the teams at the top to make the right decisions. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see with like a full year of of scouting and him and Iserman in charge with how their draft goes, goes next year where they should have, you know, some good picks um, and lots of talent to choose from. Yeah. And the one thing that they, they do have going forward, and I guess this is a, kind of a small consolation is um, they have a surplus of picks over the next couple of years, right? They have two more picks than the average team over the next few years. Uh, and those picks come primarily in the second and third rounds. They have Washington second uh, this coming year, 2020 and San Jose's third. They don't have their own fourth. And they have Vegas as third in 2021. So those are little things that can help them on the margins. They, they just need to rebuild everything, right? And getting a lot of picks is a decent way to do that. The thing that just kind of strikes me is, man, like some of these deals, some of these deals are recently signed and they're just like, they, they're aging like milk, right? Like Franz Nielsen, why? Why'd they, get, why'd they sign him to 5.25 mil? And they signed it to him, they signed that to him when he was like 33 or something, 33 or 34. And now he's 35 why yeah those 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 loyalty deals from ken holland yeah. are are rough yes um, very much so and just really really put them in a basket. and the two or three worst of them still won't expire until 2023 2024 right um they have abdulkader at 4.25 until 23 24 they have nielsen at 5.25 till 22 23 those that's the years it expires so like in the in the summer of 2022 in the summer of 2023 those will expire danny de kaiser five mil until which expires in uh, summer 2022 they're getting off a little bit 
this summer when Jonathan Erickson, Trevor Daly, and Mike Green expire. But like, they're they're just gonna they have to replace them with like decent players, um, and it'll be difficult to do that in the UFA market. So they really just do need to build up a, a prospect pipeline, right? So yeah, it's it's kind of kind of stuck in the mud. Oh, they did acquire Adam Ernie, who was a former Lightning player. Did you have any particular thoughts on that deal? Yeah, that was kind of a strange one um, because right after they traded Adam Ernie is when they went and signed Pat Maroon, um, where, like, to me, I I think, like, Pat Maroon is just basically, like, older Adam Ernie. Um, and I, I liked Ernie... He had a really strong start to the year when he wasn't playing every game. I was arguing pretty hard for him to be in the lineup every night. He got in the lineup every night, and then he really tailed off in the second half of the season when he was playing more. Um, he seems like a bottom six forward. Like his ceiling at this point in his career looks like a third line winger. Um, like he'd be on the fourth line on a good team. He and everything that he's talked about in the media seems to. Like I get a sense from some of the quotes and stuff that he maybe wasn't happy with that, that kind of bottom six future where he would have been kind of locked in in Tampa Bay and, and thinks that he has, you know, a higher ceiling than that, which like credit to him for, you know, having that self-belief and he scored a lot in junior and he scored in the AHL. So maybe he does have that. Um, I didn't see it at the NHL level, but maybe, maybe he doesn't have that in him. And, and so he thinks that, you know, a trade, is going to be the best possibility, you know, for him to, to kind of do that. So, yeah, it was a little weird one for me, especially given the contract that he signed was, like, totally reasonable, so it doesn't seem like money would have been an issue. Um, just seems like maybe he he wasn't thrilled with his, with his role, and so the team, having the depth they had, sent him somewhere where he could have a chance at earning the kind of role that he thinks he's capable of, and then they were able to backfill with, you know, basically the this maybe a slightly better version of the, of the same player in, in Pat Maroon. Yeah, the only last thing I have to say about Detroit is Valtteri Felpula. Giving him two years doesn't really matter, but it doesn't really make sense. Um, they should be making these little UFA signings with the hope of trading them, I honestly think. And certainly with a guy of Felpula's age, there's a 0% chance he's going to be around for any incarnation of the team that is actually good. They also so gave him a, a no-trade clause. Yeah. Well, the only thing I'll, the, the only thing I'll say with that one, and this is going to be me, like, people, if, like, stats-oriented people listen to this, they would get mad at this, but, um, like, I, I do think there's value to having veterans on a young team, and I think it's pretty clear that Steve Eiserman really likes Val Philpola um, and mm-hmm. thought he was really important in Tampa to being a leader um, in the room and on the team. And so, like, if you're going to be terrible for the next two years, um, I really don't have a problem with saying, like, we're going to, like, Val Philpola is going to be on every flight and he's going to be in every practice um, and he's going to be in every team meeting uh, for the next two years and we're going to pay for that and we don't really care uh, if, like, he sucks out loud on the third or fourth line or whatever um, and gets us a couple extra lottery points because we think that the stuff that he does when he's not taking a shift is yeah is that's a decent point and you know if he has any trade value um so yeah do we want to transition to the ottawa senators at this point and oh yeah of course uh, this mostly is just... just laugh yeah pretty much um <laughs> so... although mm-hmm. they've done us a great discourtesy um by making a good move 
I hate it when Ottawa makes good moves. It's like the universe is backwards. But they gave Tom Chabot an eight-year extension at eight million per. And if he lives up to his potential, and he's already very, very good at 22, um, that deal could look stupid good in a few years. Um, you know, it, it might not, and they're certainly locking in, but I envy that contract to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a smart play for them because, well, I mean, first off, from a PR perspective, it's a, it's a genius move from a PR perspective because mm-hmm. the past 18 months, 24 months, has, has just been star after star effectively leaving Ottawa in large part because the ownership group seemingly was just unwilling to commit to them, right? I mean, Tom Shabbat's a great player. He's not going to be as good as Eric Carlson was, right? Uh, and for some mm-hmm. reason, they, they weren't that in on Eric Carlson, right? They, um, they traded Mark Stone. And all these players said, yeah, we would have liked to have stayed in Ottawa, but like the team situation and the ownership situation and the, kind of the lack of investment that the team was getting is made it kind of untenable. So from a PR perspective, it's an automatic win. But also what they're doing is they're kind of, they're taking a chance because I don't think Shabbat is worth 8 million as of this instant, but there's a, a pretty reasonable chance that he becomes a player who's worth far more than that, right? And they're taking a chance on capturing a huge amount of surplus value if Shabbat pans out the way that they hope he does, right? It's kind of what Arizona is doing with a lot of players, but I think Shabbat's a much better horse to bet on than Clayton Keller. Um, so, like, if Shabbat doesn't become a star, they're probably not going to be contending anyways, and okay, whatever, we got then we got to deal with that. But they have a real chance of capturing really, really high-end surplus value, and that's how a financially underpowered team can really succeed. It's, it's like a, it's a David strategy, as uh, Malcolm Gladwell will put it, and I feel icky for using a Malcolm Gladwell concept uh, on this, but it, it's basically saying, you know, we need to take a chance in order to compete with people who have more money than us, right? And, and that's what they did, and they did it to some extent with Colin White as well, who um, they signed to, I forget the term, I think it was six years and like 4.75 per year. Uh, 4.75 million per year and white right now seems like a pretty okay nhler um and but if he can blossom into a good second line center then that's a pretty good contract if he can't then it's a bit of a problem but they're taking that risk because they kind of have to in their financial situation yeah i think the the chapot deal is basically just like every every team should be doing that with every player who has like a great you know first or second year like that's what we see baseball teams do now obviously different Mm -hmm. situation without a cap and stuff but yeah you you're the team you have the ability to um absorb a lot of the risk because you can say hey we'll offer you all this financial security for your future um earlier you know in your career and you can have that now um you just have to be willing to take the risk that you're going to be giving up a lot of your earning potential on the back end. Um, and that's teams have a lot of leverage at that stage of a player's career, because when a player is, you know, 21, 22 years old, um, there's no guarantees that that money's going to keep coming for the next eight years. And so if you wait until after their ELC is done and they've done it for two years or two and a half years or whatever, um, then they're a lot more confident that they're going to be able to do that forever. You know, um, like Shabbat could could reasonably start to have some, you know, I wouldn't say regrets, but start to wonder if maybe he made the optimal decision. Like as soon as after next season, like if he has if his next season is as good as this one was, then like he he could be looking at you know the the sixth, seventh, and eighth years of that deal, you know, being 
well below what he might have earned if he'd taken a different path. So there's it's a very smart thing for teams to do. Um, I think it's something that agents for players have to be really cautious about when they have players who look that good that early in their in, the, in their career. Um, you know, making sure that that's the right decision for them. But yeah, it's it, it's a smart move by them. And then the like you said, the Colin White deal that that one for me is like it's just that's fine. Like if he becomes a middle six forward, that contract will always be fine. The cap will go up. Four point seven five will be you know essentially nothing, and they're not going to be near their cap anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, that 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 one will work out. So yeah, the it's nice to see. Like it's easy to make fun of them, and I have plenty, as everyone has. Um, but it's nice to see them do something that is actually like uh, the way you would think that like a professional sports organization uh, would would run itself. And I think they're going to try this as with Brady Kachuk as well. He's only eligible for an extension July 1st of 2020. Um, but he looks really good. He looks like he can be a, a real uh, high-end player. And almost just as crucially, he looks like he can be a really high-end player who will probably get underpaid because his value is that he's, he's, very, he's a very good offensive player, but he's also good defensively. And that gets paid less than someone who provides the same net value but is elite offensively and like meh to bad defensively right so i i actually made this tweet in the wake of mitch marner signing where toronto would be in a much better cap situation if any one of their four star forwards provided the exact same value but just did it by being better defensively because then they wouldn't have gotten paid that much right um so kachuk can actually if they if they sign him to a long-term deal after this next season assuming he has you know another year of growth and another good season I imagine that's going to be an elite deal that we're going to look back on and be like, wow, that is amazing from the team's perspective and that the player probably could have done a little bit better. Yeah, and Tampa's got two of those next summer with Anthony Sorelli and Eric Chernak, who, if both of them again have seasons where they don't score but put up like super high-end like war totals, it's going to be really interesting to see what their, what their contracts look like. Um, I'm, I'm, I wrote about that already, actually, around the Evan Rodriguez signing, because he's another player who who looks really valuable in the aggregate, but it almost all comes from defense, and he got like a nothing deal um, and from an arbitrator, I think, in Buffalo. So I'm I'm really interested to see in Tampa with two slightly higher profile players, like what their what their next contracts look like, because I think that's a really like league wide, that's a really interesting trend to watch is. Um, you know, players who derive most of their value from their defensive play or at the very least don't score a lot of points. Um, how what what do their contracts look like, and is that a place where teams can can sort of uh, you know find find some value if if they're paying market value for offense? Um, is is the way to be better to uh, pay well below market value for the same impact defensively? Yeah, that reminds me of what Carolina has been doing, and uh, seems to be working out for them. Minnesota as well, although like Minnesota, it seems like a lot of their defense also comes from their coaching structure as well, and and Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah. So, yeah, I, the thing I would say about Ottawa is like all dunking on them aside, if tomorrow Eugene Melnick sold the team to like generic NHL owner with like a reasonable amount of wealth and reasonably non-interfering. You would look at them and say, hey, they're in a pretty decent rebuild position. Oh, absolutely. Like, they're still quite bad, but you can see a path to success in a few years. And they have, now granted, uh, acquiring Nikita Zaitsev, that was 
dubious, <laughs> to say the least. And they've still got Bobby Ryan hanging around for another three. But, like, a lot could open up for them as long as they draft well, which they generally have. And if they get just a bit more freedom to spend, and, you know, if White and Chabot are, in some sense, a sign of that, which, you know, I don't know if I quite believe it's going to happen under Melnick, but they do have some stuff to, to hope for and to look forward to. After last year, which was probably, like, the nadir of their existence, although they've had a lot of low points in their, their 25 years in the league, but... Yeah, I mean, there are some things here that are, like, the foundations of a good team. It's just the team as currently constituted is complete ass, and the ownership is questionable. Yeah, I think Melnick has to... Like, I don't think anything can change for them meaningfully until he's gone. Um, Mm -hmm. Just think that's the harsh reality. Um, I wish that the league would be more proactive in situations like this um, and stop pretending that this is, like some kind of that that teams are it's like the league is a normal business where like you know the franchise owners you know are typical franchisees with typical franchisee rights and agreements and things like that like um teams are are there's a very significant sort of like public aspect of teams and the relationship that they have with the cities that they're in and um with the fan bases that they have and they get all sorts of special treatment um in terms of you know financing for arenas and things like that so yeah, I, 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 I really wish that the NHL would be more would be more aggressive and sort of not allowing this to continue <laughs> uh, as even as long as it has or as long as it appears that it's going to where, he, you know, he really has to get to like a financial breaking point or someone has to come in and, and um, do business with him and sort of like pretend that he's acting in good faith and that he's actually on sound financial standing and, and like treat him the way that you would treat a normal franchise owner if you are making um, an offer, which uh, shouldn't have to be the case because he obviously doesn't have the wherewithal to, to, to run the team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, it, it's it's great to see them making some moves, and I'm glad that their fans had that Shabbat moment to, like, celebrate where there's really nothing that you can look at, and there's no reason to feel bad about that move. That's a great move. He's a young player. He was awesome last year. Um, that's a good contract. You're going to feel good about that you know, for the next at least six or seven years until it, until they try to trade it. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's nice to see them have that moment, but it just, the, the reality is that that, that can't be fixed until Melnick is gone. And so maybe they have, you know, a couple seasons, you know, two or three years from now where they've got all these young players on, on value contracts and they're able to compete again. Um, like we've seen them do uh, before where they, they go through sort of a short window where they have enough people on enough young players on affordable contracts that they can they can be a competitive team um, before those players want to get paid and, and have to get shipped out. So they're they're on the sort of they, they have their own sort of unique competitive cycle that's different from the rest of the league and they're on the uptick towards it. And so if they can draft well and some of these guys pan out, then maybe they have a you know a couple you know playoff runs in them a few years from now. But you know big picture just unfortunately doesn't change until there's there's change at the top that's just that's just the reality yeah pretty much i mean one of the nba podcasters i follow uh has basically this phrase that they repeat after um it's relevant they say that ownership's the biggest competitive advantage in the league and i don't think it's quite as obvious in the nhl because in the nba you have a luxury tax which means that a deep pocketed owner can actually just spend a lot more than 
uh, one who is miserly. Uh, the NHL, you don't have the mechanisms to do that. But having bad ownership is truly, truly toxic, right? It infects every part of the organization. And it, at least for Ottawa, they, they don't have the specter of not having their pick hanging over their head. So when they're losing games, and they're going to lose a lot of games this year, um, it'll be at least with the idea of, okay, well, we're, we're going to get, you know, Alexei Lafreniere or Quentin Byfield or someone like that. Right, and it, as you said before, it's a very, very deep draft apparently. So, they should get another really strong prospect uh, who is potentially ready to contribute even as early as 2020, 2021. All right. So, with that being said, uh, is there anything else that we wanted to add? I think we covered everything pretty well. This is a bit of a monster podcast, almost two hours. Um, was there anything else we wanted to cover, or should we wrap it up? I think we, I think we covered everyone pretty well. I'm sure we said some things that were wrong, and everyone will let us know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think we, I think we touched on, on everything that's happening in the division. Let's do the Metro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Another two hours coming right up. Um, but yeah, uh, um, Alan, do you have anything you want to plug real quick before, before we head out? Um, just, uh, if you're looking for lightning news, um, raw charge, uh, is the SB nation site, just like pension pen puppets, uh, for the lightning. Uh, so Go over there, read the stuff we write. Um, I write, a lot of other smart people write there too. Um, if for some reason you uh, don't have enough bad tweets on your timeline on Twitter, you can follow me at LoserPoints. Um, I sometimes tweet about hockey, but tweet about a lot of un- other stuff uh, that isn't interesting also. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think that's I think that, that covers it. Great. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on the pod. We really enjoy having you on, as you can tell by us keeping you here for, for a couple hours. Um, for all our other listeners, I, I really recommend you visit Raw Charge that you follow Alan on Twitter. Uh, Raw Charge does a lot of really good uh, hockey stuff, uh, not just with the Lightning, but um, actually one article of Alan's that actually influenced me very heavily is one last year where you argued that Nikita Kucherov didn't deserve the heart and talked a bit about how points as an evaluative metric is becoming harder and harder to justify as we continue to learn more about the game and that's influenced a lot of how i see hockey and you know how it's changing it's changing the way i view stats going forward as well so by all means definitely check that out uh you can catch mine and fulman stuff at pensionpenpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at fulman thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon